Hi, and welcome to a small, medium, at large podcast. I'm your host, Gail Heisen, bringing you intimate interviews beyond normal boundaries. I want to thank all you listeners for subscribing, liking, sharing, commenting, and just being there listening to the shows on all the different sites from YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all other inter all other uh, sites for you to watch and listen. So today we have a special guest I want to tell you about named Jacob Glazer. Jacob Glazer holds an assistant professor of psychology appointment in the Department of Anthropology, Psychology, and Sociology at the University of West Georgia. He is the co-editor of the tri-yearly publication, Mindfield, the Bulletin of the Parapsychological Association. He is interested in exploring the problematics of exceptional experience, psi as a critique of physicalist science, and the deconstruction of skeptical explanations of the paranormal. This approach he referred to as critical parapsychology. With specific regard to psi studies, his main area of research interest include ecology and the paranormal, animism, paraanthropology, the philosophy of parapsychology, psychoanalysts, and parapsychology and trickster theory. He has written Arts of Subjectivity and his newly released book, Paranormal Raptures, Critical Approaches to Exceptional Experiences. Let's welcome Jacob here today. Hi, Jacob. Welcome. Hi, Gil. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here, and I'm really excited to have the discussion with you today about all things paranormal. That's really wonderful. I, I always start off all my guests with their childhood because I've heard the most interesting stories. And some of the time it does affect the work that and path that people are on. Sometimes it has nothing to do with it. So I'm wondering in your family and in your growing up, were there things that happened that put you on this path of parapsychology and anthropology? Or was there nothing to do with your life then? And it came later in life as an adult. I'm just wondering how you got driven to this area. Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, I have so many stories about uh, sort of, I guess, uh, happenstance, how things just kind of fell into my lap. Um, you know, parapsychology in one way is just sort of that happenstance. It just kind of came to me. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. I think, uh, you know, I'm not sure if this is paranormal, but I, I remember vividly when I was young, uh, in grade school or younger, I remember having imaginary friends um, and, you know, sort of having a relationship with them. Um, you know, a little bit later on, I was, you know, in, in maybe third grade, fourth grade, I was really interested in um, astronomy and space and you know I wanted to be an astronomer if you can believe it. there's too much math involved so I had to change change course <laughs> uh, but um, but yeah and then I, I can remember vividly in my head um, I had books um, uh, not fiction but non-fiction sort of picture books uh, about UFOs wow yeah and, you know, this is, you know, I'm probably, you know, a freshman, sophomore in high school. You know, I mean, I, I was nerd. I was a little bit nerdy. Right? I was really academic. So, you know, it just was sort of, you know, it just kind of kept coming back into my life. There was nothing, you know, really explicit that happened. You know, I mean, I can think of some, you know, weird sort of sleep paralysis moments, like in college that I would have, you know, that kind of, you know, threw me for a loop. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, and so, you know, I, then I graduated my undergrad degree in philosophy and psychology, went on to get trained as a therapist, as a counselor, which I'm, you know, so glad that I did that. And then came down when I should back up a second, when I was interviewing for, uh, admission into the PhD program at West Georgia. So University of West Georgia. Um, I didn't know this at the time, but there, there's a tradition at that university to have a faculty member that is sort of designated as a parapsychologist. 
And so, you know, there's been several through the years. I think um, Raymond Moody was one of one of them. He, of course, famously wrote uh, about NDEs, near-death experiences. Um, Dr. Bill Roll uh, is another one. He, uh, you know, published a lot on poltergeist activity. Uh, and then my, and so I'm getting ahead of myself. So I remember going to interview there. Uh, down in Carrollton, Georgia. So I'm I'm from Illinois. So I had to make the trip down, and getting a handout um, of the different faculty, their research interests, and I don't know, you know, for some reason this just sticks with me. I remember circling uh, Dr. Christine Simmons Moore's biography. I just Love circled it, it you know, <laughs> like oh, I'm like this is. You know, really interesting. You know, I don't know. I know I don't have a lot of academic training in parapsychology, but I'm just really interested in this. And then, so lo and behold, right? I I get accepted to the program, and then I get assigned to Dr. Simmons Moore. She's my uh, advisor, my mentor, and so I work underneath her as a graduate assistant. And, you know, so that was, you know, just an amazing experience. And I was able to kind of get immersed in the research and the literature on the paranormal. Uh, and then, you know, cut to maybe, you know, five, six, seven years later, uh, I get hired back, back, I get hired at the University of West Georgia as a full-time faculty member. <laughs> and so... It's just this, I don't know, it's like this cyclical relationship. Like I find myself kind of like getting away from it a little bit, but then something happens and I, you know, circle back to it. Uh, so, so yeah, so that's where I'm at right now. Um, you know, part of my research program is, I would say explicitly on the paranormal, mm -hmm. so parapsychology. And then, you know, the other half is, you know, and we can, you know, talk about this a little bit later on, but what's called critical theory. Uh, so just, uh, tr you know, briefly tr trying to understand different power dynamics uh, in like institutions and society and narratives, stories, and, you know, just how the how language and narrative kind of shapes our view of the world. Um, so yeah, so I've got both of those going on. And, and you know, funny enough, the, the book Paranormal Ruptures is kind of like a amalgamation like a class you know a, a putting together of both those things you know both parapsychology and uh critical theory so you weren't actually planning to fully go into it this way but you knew you wanted to be a therapist and then you ended up meeting all these amazing people who you just spoke about who i've met them all and they're all incredible i did meet moody but I met Bill Roll and I've seen uh, Simmons a bunch of different times. Met her before she was ever married and had children. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so you got to be really uh, around some incredible people doing very, very good work. So that's a, uh, that would be a wonderful opening to go down that path. It, yeah, well, it was. And, you know, it, it's interesting you say it like that, Gail, because I kind of just jumped on that. You know, I was, I, you know, was sort of kind of caught off guard that I found myself, you know, at University of West Georgia, and they, you know, surprisingly had this tradition of parapsychology, you know, so I kind of just jumped on it, and I just followed it, and, you know, I don't know, it's, it's, it's strange. Sometimes I, I don't have a, a good vision sort of where I'm going. It's more of like an intuition. You know, I just trust myself. You know, this is what I'm interested in. I just follow that. And it and it, it's paid off so far. So that's always great. I think that following your intuition or your gut, uh, Dean Radin used to tell me that the gut is the other brain, that we have two brains in the body. And I, I find when I follow that, things go along smoothly for me. When I don't follow the gut and I say, oh, no, I don't know that's when I end up having obstacles. So following your gut is a good, a good piece of information here for us to share with, with our audience. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, before I go into questions about your book and about the critical approaches to exceptional experiences, I was wondering 
what personal paranormal experiences have you had? And also part two of the question would be any anthropological experiences with other cultures? I was wondering what your direct experiences are that not something you read about, but that you yourself experienced. Of course, there could be many. You don't have to share all of them, but if you could share just a couple of the top ones you'd like to talk about. Yeah, yeah. I've got a, uh, a, a sort of a list going on in my head. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I think what, what comes to, to mind, uh, you know, and this isn't kind of very sensational, but it's still, you know, kind of profound for me is that oftentimes, now oftentimes, sometimes I should, I should say, you know, I'll, I'll have, I'll, I'll dream something. Okay. And then I find myself in that situation or a similar situation, you know, the next day in the next couple of days. And so, you know, of course, you know, normal science, you know, might call that deja vu or might call that, you know, that we're kind of tricking ourselves or deluding ourselves in some way. But, but I, that, that happens. Um, that happens for sure. Um, for me, um, I think, uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm just sort of hung up on, on dreams. I have, you know, very sort of strange, I think they're non-typical dreams, um, you know, that, that, that seem to happen, or I guess even visions sometimes. Um, and so, you know, I haven't had a, you know, you know, like being abducted by aliens or anything like that, like, some, you know, something crazy. But I think, you know, this is part of the reason why I'm a psychologist is because I think that there's such an interesting connection going on that that's not well understood in terms of our psychology, our mind, and then I'm just going to say the nature of reality, mm -hmm. right? Time and space and, you know, remote viewing is such an interesting phenomenon to me because it, it says that, you know, we're not bound by Newtonian physics, by time and space, like we typically know them. I, that was That was one of the big teachings I got when I became a remote viewer for Russell Targ and Dean Radin over 20 years ago. And I had no idea I could do this. I wasn't trained at it. I was just able to do it when they asked me, but by doing it in an experiment, which I had never done experiments like that before in my life, I was seeing that time was not like I thought it was. And it was taking me to places and making me realize I'm sitting here in an office, but I can tell you something that's gonna happen in. In, in the future or something that I, that happened in the past or something in the present, but I'm just still sitting in that same little office in, you know, uh, at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and the information is coming. Mm -hmm. So after doing that numerous times, I realized I just had to say, time is not how we, it's like you can bend it or move it or it's not the way we think of it as some linear thing like this. Yeah, totally, totally agree. I mean, I think, you know, I've I've written a little bit about this, but it's it's more in like kind of theoretical jargon, just just to, to stay safe, you know, just to like be honest, you know, with the viewers and with you, you know, parapsychology, if you're an academic that's doing work in parapsychology, you that can be damaging or you can be kind of blacklist you, you know, in some ways. So thankfully, you know, West Georgia, they're very open and I'm I'm very supported by my colleagues. But, you know, I've, I've tried to think about the, these things in terms of uh, the nature of time and space and, and, and more abstract ways and sort of, you know, sort of written what you just said, which is, you know, that, that at least in terms of our psychology or our mind, we're not bound the, way, the, the same way that our physical body seems to be bound. Um, so there's much more fluidity right? We can kind of go backwards, forwards. Um, and not just that, but, you know, I think the the, the notion of a, of a timeline is so interesting, right? And, you know, I think synch synchronicities get into that. So these coincidences or deja vu, right? The, they're trying to maybe set us on this this right timeline so that we can, you know, be be who we're meant to be, basically. 
well, your imaginary playmates that you had as a child, they might not have been imaginary. They <laughs> might have actually been, you know, spirits or family members or people from wanting to just be with you. Because when we're younger, we don't have as many uh, filters here and we're able to uh, see things a little clearer. So as a child, I think you were clearly seeing other beings that you were playing with. And it's much com more comfortable for family members or parents to say, oh, those are your imaginary friends. But they might not have been imaginary. We don't know, but they may not have. Right. And when you're dreaming, you're dreaming precognitively. You're dreaming what's going to happen in the future, even if it's the next day. It's still the future. And there's some kind of, once we start to honor those dreams, they can give us information that can help us. You can avoid a car accident. It's There's ways that that can really help you if you pay attention to the dreams that you were having. Right, right, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and then that that's sort of the challenge for me is that, and maybe for others too, is that trying to know what to pay attention, attention to and to sift out. You know, because there's so much static and white noise. It's like, you know, what's important, what's not. And so I think I've gotten a little bit better about that, but it's still, you know, it takes practice, I think. I always find it's, for me, the information, if it's coming, uh, you know, if you want to call it psychically or whatever the word is, uh, for me, it's whatever, it's the fleeting one. It's not something like that just sits there and says it over and over again, like a repeat in your mind. It's something that comes in and comes out really fast. And when I see that, I know that that's the one, not the one that I might be dwelling on or repeating over and over. It's a fleeting moment. And I just, I also find that the more you speak to the intuition of your own self and listen to it, the stronger the voice becomes and it starts to separate a little from that static and all that noise, because it can be incredibly confusing with all the other things, whether it's a television show you saw or other things that have happened that came into your mind and then you put it together this way or that way, those can confuse you from the one that's really coming from, I don't know, universal thought or some some other place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, li I like that, Gail. And, and too, I think, you know, this is why you know, I seem, you know, I have that, that clinical background as a therapist, because that I, I, I even, you know, talk with clients about this, how important it is to trust yourself, you know, and so that's what I think you're speaking to is that, you know, you, you know, if you're having these visions or having these experiences, you know, you gotta, uh, you know, try and work through them and get to a place where you, you know, trust yourself and you're kind of feel more, more certain, more sure of, of what's happening. And the more you trust that, I think the stronger you become in that knowingness. Yeah. So did you have any anthropological experiences or have you traveled and spent time with other cultures? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think it's a, it's a really an important kind of experience to have. Um, I'm not going to, you know, not, not, I really haven't, you know, to be fair. I haven't. I mean, of course, you know, I've traveled, um, but it, it's been more um, so, sort of for, for pleasure, for leisure uh, to different countries and, and to take in culture. You know, I just got back from Oslo, Norway, because the, the, the PA conference was over there in, in August. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the PA just is the Parapsychological Association. Um, so, you know, that I don't think that really counts just because it's it's western you know it's europe you know it's kind of what i'm used to mm -hmm. um but but you know i i academically and, and experientially i think you know it's you know being around other cultures can be so so enriching um so you know i appreciate that question yes i i i I think that would be a great thing for you to go and have some of those experiences in in the future so I want to shift now a little bit. So I go towards uh, your new book, Paranormal Ruptures. And I was wondering if we could just start off with the beginning of your subtitle, which says critical approaches to exceptional experiences. Can you tell us, listen, our listeners, exactly what you mean by that? Yes. Um, 
So critical approaches that I, that comes from uh, crit, what's called critical theory in the, in um, academia, right? In the literature, um, you know, the scholars write about. And so these critical approaches, critical theory, wants to understand how our our subjectivity or our identity is sort of fashioned by social and cultural forces. So let me give you an example, okay? So this is this isn't paranormal, but let's just say, you know, social media today uh, has a lot to do with the creation of identity and personality in our modern day society. And th that's important to pay attention to. Right. Because, you know, technology is advancing so, so quickly that if we're not aware of how we're interfaced with these other technologies and these other things, we're, you know, going to kind of you know lose ourselves or not know what's going on. So so that's, you know, that's just sort of one one example using social media. You know, but there's other examples in terms of society and, and thinking uh, institutions, you know, you know, for example, like me being a, um, you know, in school for so long and, and being in a university, right, that shapes and colors my personality, mm -hmm. you know, versus if I was, you know, doing a different profession. Um, so, so that's, that's generally critical theory. Um, and the other part of the subtitle, which is exceptional experiences, uh, sort of grows out of uh, Rhea White's work. So Rhea White was a feminist parapsychologist, and she was interested in looking, taking a, I'm a like a humanistic or a transpersonal approach to uh, the paranormal. And so she came up with the term exceptional human experiences. So E-H-E. And nowadays, it's sort of more common practice just to shorten it to exceptional experiences. And so it's I chose that title because I like the term um, exceptional. You know, I mean, it could be a synonym for paranormal, but it doesn't have the negative connotations, you know, sometimes paranormal. So it's like just exceptional. Right. And then experiences is just a really, really rich word, you know, and it, it speaks to kind of our humanity and to, you know, just our whole holistic sort of being in the world. And and so so I like that. And so that's that's in contrast to what some of the ex experimental researchers would say in parapsychology, they would call the paranormal psi. Or, or P P S I, which is, you know, I would argue problematic in some ways because it divorces the paranormal from us. <laughs> you know, it's trying to trying to like ice locate this empty variable in the laboratory, but you know, the par the, the paranormal only exists because we experience it. But so, you know, I don't know, it's just a little bit of a uh, a mismatch. And so that that's that's why I like that full term, exceptional experiences. It's very well explained. So I understand that because scientists have so much to up against, so much up against when they discuss psychic or paranormal or, and I think Dean explained to me once, how many times a scientist in an experiment has to prove, like I, I'm just saying a number, say a thousand times to get the scientific community to accept it. But yet if it was a new drug or some other item that has to be studied, it gets only maybe 50, 50 reviews needed. And all of a sudden the FDA says, okay, that drug is fine. So it seems like the, the criteria for anyone studying parapsychology, they have to go through so many more hoops to prove their scientific theory than some of the scientists doing things that are really affecting your physical body. Yes. Yeah, that's that's spot on. And that that's why critical approaches or critical theory is so important, 
because it analyzes that power effect. So in other words, put, to put it as a question, why do parapsychologists have to prove themselves repeatedly more so than any other science? More, yeah. more so than chemists and, yeah. Well, do you know why? Does anybody- <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, you know, it's complex, but to try and put it as simply as sim- simple as possible, there's just a long history in speaking of anthropology in the West or in in you know our society of natural science. Okay. And natural science has a certain way of, of looking at the world and understanding the world. Uh, and that's very different than if we take like a human science approach. Okay. So th- think of the, what we just talked about, psi versus exceptional experiences, right? We're, you know, <laughs> so some parapsychologists would disagree with me, but in parapsychology, we're not doing physics, right? We're not physicists. Okay. Right. So that's, there's sort of a category error or a mistake going on. So that, so we're trying to, in other words, we're trying to be this kind of science that we're, we shouldn't want to be. And that's why we're getting so much pushback, you know? So if we can be a more humanistic kind of science, you know, I think that that, that's going to, we're not, we're not going to have to prove ourselves constantly, right? We can just sort of listen to these stories, analyze them and try and understand what's really going on. I, I, you know, having been a subject in so many different experiments, I've often felt at the end of some of these experiments that I've been in that some of this to me is never going to be explained or proven. It's to me more, I, I, I term it in the word of magic because I can't think of another exact proper word, but I feel like some of these things, at least for my functioning, I just accept them as this is the way it is. And it's just some sort of magic. I cannot give an explanation of how I hear voices or how I see things. I don't have an explanation of where it comes from, but that I just accept it that that's how it is. So I've always thought to to, to scientists that they're working so hard. Why can't they just say, this is the way it is. <laughs> and this brings me to one of the stories I read in your book that I was hoping you could share. I thought it was a great story. And, you know, correct me if I have the name wrong, but I don't know if it was an anthropologist named Grindal or if it was, I think it was an anthropologist. And it was the dancing dead story that he couldn't speak about for 20 years. When I think of the impact of him seeing such an amazing thing and then holding it inside that long, I thought this is an example of what we're talking about. And I thought the story was a great I mean, I would have loved to have seen such a thing, and I'm not saying I don't believe it or I do believe it. I'm saying I'm hearing his experience, and I accept that that he did experience this. Could you tell that story to our listeners? Well, so so let me let me just say that 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 with that chapter, I think it's chapter three. So um, Jack Hunter actually wrote or contributed that chapter. And he, you know, I, I have it pulled up in front of me, but I'm not, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, wouldn't do a great job trying to summarize it, but it's fascinating. It's fascinating because Jack takes a, an anthrop- anthropological approach and he identif- or, or identifies three stories. Um, and this is one of the three stories that we would think would be impossible. Right. You know, just That's a great story. Just it's, it's so fascinating. I mean, then the, the other part is that these are from respectable anthropologists, right? These aren't, you know, somebody walking down the street and saying they saw something. Right. These are professional anthropologists that are respected and they're saying that this is what they saw, this is what they experienced. And, you know, it's like, what do we, as as professionals, right? What do we do with that, right? We can't just discredit it. We have to take them seriously. And so, you know, Jack uses these three stories. Um, there's the the the, the um, flying coffin story, 
the one that we just talked about, and there's another one too, um, but he uses them to try and understand how reality isn't, just like our discussion of, of time and space, it's not as stable as we think it is. So there's this, I, he uses the word, I think, permeability. So the things are sort of permeable and can intermix. And that that that's a better way to think of reality than thinking, you know, everything's structured, linear time, linear space, you know, well, it's most of the time, but not all the time. And these three stories are examples of when things kind of get weird. Can you tell the audience the story of the, is is it kind of there at the tip of your tongue? I, oh, I don't remember what God. country he went to or what culture he was in. I don't know if it was the Philippines. I think it was the Philippines. Yeah. So it was um, uh, an incident, including four days leading up to an event at a funeral. Mm -hmm. okay? And it was a ceremony and a death divination uh, that was a, a part of of this. Um, in it was it was in Ghana, actually. Ghana. So, the Sisala people of Ghana mm -hmm. in, in October 1967. And it was the anthropologist that, that first told the story was Bruce T. Grindle. Um, and I, I just don't want to butcher it, but I think in general, uh, Grindle, you know, talks about how he witnessed this, this ceremonial, ceremonial leader, um, he was, it was interesting because he was sort of like enmeshed with the, the tribe and kind of be, became a part of this ceremony. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. He, he had, so the, the, the anthropologist Grindel had his hand uh, back to the healer and he would beat down on an iron hoe. The, the spit would fly from his mouth and suddenly the flashes of light flew like sparks from a fire. So then the anthropologists felt their body get rigid, their jaw tightened, and at the base of their skull, they felt a jolt as though their head had been snapped off their spinal column. Terrible and beautiful sight burst upon Grindle, stretching from the amazingly delicate fingers and mouths of the Goka, which is just the, the healer, strands of fibrous light played upon the head, fingers, and toes of the dead man. So the corpse, right, in the ceremony, was shaken by spasms, then rose to its feet, spinning and dancing in, in a frenzy. So, so it's, you know, I could go on, right? There's more. <laughs> but it's, I mean, it's, it's just so astounding, right, that this is what happened. And, you know, how, so how is that story critical in nature? because it, it defies and it pushes back against our normal understanding of reality. You know, I, how, how would science describe that? Right. <laughs> and death, you don't hear about that happening in death here. Right. But in Ghana, that might be a common, you know, that might be a common event at a funeral. It might not be the first time a deceased body started to shake and come to life. I mean, not to life, but to movement. Right. And, you know, I've never heard that story, and I was just, I was just blown away by it. And I don't, I don't deny that it happened. I'm just blown away that this man had to wait 20 years. How he must have been so affected by seeing such an experience like that, that you know, he couldn't even write about it. Right. 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 But, it, know, people would tell him he was crazy, or I don't know what they would have said to him. Yeah, that, that's yeah, and that that's what we're trying to change uh, with the book, right? That I'm trying to change is that people shouldn't be fearful of telling their stories, and even more importantly, these stories are really important for researchers, right? They help us understand the human condition, what's going on, and we got to, I you know, I I'm, I strongly advocate for pushing back against the stigma of paranormal experiences because it's it's done nothing but harm to people um so yeah so i think that you know hearing the story again just sort of 
you know, is, is amazing and just speaks to just the, the power of culture mm-hmm. yeah, and belief, you know, that go into, you know, being a human. Yes. And when you travel around the world and you see other heal, you know, in the times I spent in the Weechol community, nobody goes and runs to a medical doctor down in the city. They're up in the mountains and the shaman that's their shaman, because there are many different shamans to to pick from. And uh, the shaman is the person they're going to, whether it's a mental issue or a physical issue. And the healing may be done with, you know, you know, bird feathers and uh, other items and and the healing can occur. But that would not fit into a scientific answer as to how did this person get rid of their cancer or how did this actually occur? I've had a lot of these unusual experiences that you talk about. And all I can tell people is they're my experience. And I, if I didn't, I mean, I didn't believe in spoon bending, but then when I started bending spoons, I realized, oh, that is, you can bend spoons. So I'm not like a skeptic, but I'm also, you know, I, I also have an open mind and I don't like to say yes or no. I like to see for myself and then decide. But I don't say, oh, no, that never happened. Oh, yes, that could happen. You know, I like to experience it. Then I feel like this is my experience. This is how I experienced that when I went to this culture or that culture. These are the things I saw that was not the things that I see, say, in the United States. And um, I think there's so much rich information out there in all those other places to teach the Western world. Uh, I, I just, anyway, so I think this is a wonderful thing that what you're trying to do is take away from the, the scientists the idea that this all has to be proven in some scientific way and that the more important thing is gathering the information and the stories that the people actually experience. Because you do find, like, when you speak about moody and near-death experiences, things like this that touch people directly, immediately in the current time, they can't deny that. They can't deny when they've died and they've seen experiences of connections to souls they know that have already deceased, that you can't say to them now that that didn't happen. You can't tell them that they think that maybe dying isn't the same way as we think of it as just the body goes and that's it they've experienced something else and they've often sometimes returned with more heightened sensations to be able to understand or see things in other realms. Uh, I, I had a, my one of my guests, Donna uh, Ribadell, she clinically died in a drowning. And when she came back, her life and everything she did was completely changed. And she became like, she didn't know she could bend spoons like hundreds and hundreds of spoons. She Her psychic side just opened up hugely so those things i think they can't be denied because they may occur in a hospital they may occur with doctors around you know ones that tell them stories about i know this and this and this you did to me but they they saw the person was completely clinically you know out on drugs and yet they're able to conceive what was going on during their surgeries it seems to me there's so much out there that i can't believe that they can't finally just say yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i think um you know I, I i love what you're talking about in terms of the the transformational aspect to these experiences mm-hmm. science doesn't know what to do with that <laughs> and it's so important it, that, it, it, that's i mean yeah that's like an essential part of the experience Right. And so, you know, science just doesn't they they don't have the methods, the experiments. They can't understand that, that significance, how transformative it can be. And they're not interested in that. You know, they're looking at, you know, I don't know. I'm thinking of, you know, neurology. You know, they're looking at what's going on in the brain. You know, if you have an NDE, you know, maybe the brain is releasing these chemicals and, you know, so on and so forth, which is fine. But, you know, I'm saying what, what I think we're both saying is that there's something more important going on. It's not just brain chemistry. It's it's this kind of transformational experience that this person is having 
and we can't ex talk about it, explain it in terms of just neurons in terms of the brain. I participated in one of those brain experiments and it was paid for by the NHK um, in Japan. And um, it was up at the University of Washington and it was uh, conducted by Leanna Standish, who was a neuroscientist. And we were the second couple ever to do this experiment, but it was considered a telepathic experiment, but they now had um, an fMRI machine so they can functionally see your brain working at the same time. And they were able to show, see that there was a change of blood flow in the brain during the te telepathy part of the experiment. So uh, this is, you know, I was just there doing the telepathy and being in the fMRI machine, but the things that they were looking for were things like that. They found a change of blood flow. So they showed there was some effect going on in the brain during the telepathic communication. Right. And, you know, like the, to me, that was really beyond my, <laughs> <laughs> I can do the telepathy, but I can't understand all the scientific research and the brain and all the things that they were looking for or how it lights up or what exactly they see. But um I thought that was pretty amazing that neuroscientists themselves were really looking into this kind of phenomena. Um, so I have some more questions here for you about what do you mean when you say that science and paranormal science are human creations and culturally bound? Is that about what we did? We just sort of cover that or is there a way of answering that question? Yeah, I think I think we have we we we've covered that a little bit, but you know that you know again, I I would just say that um, you know science wasn't handed down to us from God. Mm -hmm. Okay, right? Science is a a created we something we created. It's been one of the arguably one of the best methods at getting to truth about the world, right? Um, but it's it's flawed and and it has flaws to speak about you know critical theory a bit i think i talk about um uh feminism in the book and there was there was a conference in 1991 um i think it was called Fem parapsychology and feminism that was in 91 and then in in honor of that conference just last year the journal of anomalistics sort of published uh, a special issue on feminism mm -hmm. okay so this is this is in parapsychology right the paranormal in relation to what feminism is and so feminism is is a critical approach because it it understand it, it it tries to see you know how um women have historically been excluded or marginalized and it tries to to bring social justice to those issues Okay. And so I'm saying that because to circle back to your question about, you know, science and paranormal science being human creations and culturally bound, uh, science uh, is guilty of, uh, and still this happens today, is guilty of being prejudiced and discriminating against uh, certain groups of people, mm -hmm. women, um, African-Americans, LGBTQ individuals, so on and so forth. And more, maybe even more importantly, those models that are outside of the West, mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's you know, what the, the fancy word is Eurocentric, just means centered around Europe. So mm -hmm. like, you know, it has these, these Eurocentric models, science does, and it, it excludes all the rest you know, oh, you're not scientific. You're not, you know, doing the real stuff. So, so anyway, so I'm saying that just because I think, you know, the critical approach helps us, you know, understand that, right? And and we have to be careful because what we think is true, what we're doing right today, we could realize in 20 years that we're actually doing people a disservice. I, I I'm thinking your particular job being a psychologist and therapist for others, that often those people get misdiagnosed by other people in the field, where if they say, yes, I hear voices, they immediately label them as a schizophrenic or they need to be on drugs or 
there aren't enough, uh, is not enough information. The therapist is only uh, trained in, in schooling, but they haven't been around enough experiences to know that maybe these people are having out-of-body experiences or other things that are happening to them that they're not crazy. It's just that the psychiatrist or psychologist isn't familiar with these things that could happen. I'm not saying that there isn't also a craziness where people do hear voices. Yes, of course there is that. But I think a lot of people get misdiagnosed in situations like this sometimes because the the person that they're seeing, the doctor they're seeing may not understand that they are having unusual, exceptional experiences. Right, right, exactly. And then and, and we and that's why, you know, we've got to raise awareness around these things. I'm thinking of, you know, the, the hearing voices network. It's not it's not a paranormal network. But it's work to try and normalize just hearing different voices, he, you know, hearing things, thinking outside of what's considered normal. Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, I, I think that that's good, right? The, 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 the tendency to just jump to, to diagnosing someone can be really harmful, you know, if, if the clinicians aren't careful about that. Mm -hmm. So... How do you think future science will incorporate what we now call anomalous or paranormal experiences? Oh, let me put my precognitive glasses on. Okay. Time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, okay. So I think that, in, and there's actually a chapter, the last chapter in the, the book talks a little bit about this. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, Elon Musk has a company called Neuralink right now where uh, I, they're trying to interface like a computer and a machine with our brain. And this is going to allow for a form of telepathy. Mm. Okay, so, <laughs> so I mean, this, you know, I just, you know, listeners can Google this, right? This is, you know, kind of out there. It's not really talked, talked a lot about, but, you know, it's going to allow for you to interface with the world, use your mind and communicate maybe with other people or with uh, objects. Okay. Actually, my husband just started working with, um, this amazing woman, Charlotte, and she has created a um, robot to, well, she's had scientists create a robot to create an orchestra where the robot is playing, the first piece we've seen is the robot plays a cello. And you're seeing the robot play the cello, but her ultimate plan is to get the a few other instruments in this group all being played by robots, but she wants to figure out a way to hook her brain up to an EKG machine where her brain would actually conduct the music that the robots would be playing. And that sounds something like what you just said, uh, which I thought was, I thought, wow, <laughs> seemed like an amazing thing. So she, she's been talking to my husband about working on software or how can we do this? How can we make the brain control the robots to play the music and her and she would be the conductor, but it would all be her brain conducting these 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 robots. Right. So that sounds like what you're saying Elon Musk is doing with this. With, with, it's, 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 it's just for me, it's too far out there for me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it I think. Uh, you know, everybody's sort of aware of AI now, artificial intelligence, right? That was huge over the last year. My husband got his uh, PhD in that at MIT. Yeah. And, but that was, you know, 30 years ago, I mean, a long time ago in the 80s. <laughs> so, so he was ahead of the curve. Yes. You know? <laughs> I would say to him, what are you going to do with a degree in AI? What What can you do with this? <laughs> And now it's all we see in the news. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. 
and there's positive things about it and negative things, just like any of these new technologies. I, right. I, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For and and you know, in the last chapter, you know, that talks a little bit about some of these positives and negatives about, you know, so so on the one hand, if we stick with technology, you know, these um, so-called paranormal things are going to become more normal. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, just using your mind to interact with, you know, another person, you know, if, if you and I both had a, that Neuralink implant, you know, theoretically, we could just send telepathic messages to each other. Well, I do that all the time without the implant. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm very grateful to have that because when my friends... I've been involved with the Weechol Indians since the 80s, and I've never stopped being involved. And I've been down there for six trips to the remote area in the mountains of Mexico. And for all those beginning 25 years, I only communicated telepathically. And that's how I would get someone from down there to call me. They would get my telepathic message. They'd get to a switchboard. We'd have a conversation. We'd make a plan. Now they all have cell phones. Nobody had cell phones there then. And I'm 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 kind of wondering what's going to happen to these cultures where they've automatically been telepathically communicating. When I was there, I'd say, how did he just appear in the woods here when we have to go meet him? Oh, they just know the message gets there, you know. So now it's going to be cell phones. <laughs> and it's so strange to me to speak to my friend Julio and call him on a cell phone when we used to do it telepathically. When I was initiated as a Buryat, into Buryat Mongolian shamanism, we had six days of preparation and no translator. And I don't speak a word of uh, Mongolian. Well, I speak two words. And um, my, 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 my teacher, Zagda, she didn't speak a word of English. And when we were interviewed for a film, they asked her, how did you communicate to Gail when you don't speak her language? And she said, I would just think what I want. And then Gail would be inside my brain and I would tell her and then she would do it. And I've often thought that this was something scientists have not studied. Right. And maybe this is something for you to check out. But why is it that I'm able to telepathically communicate with, and this is not the first culture that I've done this with, with other cultures that do not speak the language that we both speak and yet we communicate perfectly about what we need to do. Down to, she was asking in her mind, she wanted me to have this special herb from Siberia. And I came rushing down the stairs with exactly that herb someone had given me years before. How did I know that? I'm just saying, how can you communicate? And we've and we've had translators where we, we were gonna get an, a translation and they say, I don't have to translate for you because you both just said the same thing. So, has anybody looked into that? I don't know anyone that's looked into the idea that the communication tele telepathically doesn't necessarily have to be in your language. So I, what's going on? And I, I have proof of it. It's not like I didn't experience it on dozens and dozens of times. This is such an interesting observation to me. And I think more research of course i don't know i can, off the top of my head i don't know any sort of systematic research that's been done on this but but you know i've heard this from others i've heard it not just from you but from other people who have you know psychic experiences they say this that and and i i you know maybe i brush up against this a little bit in the book because critical theory is really focused on language mm -hmm. right so there is something, right, about language. We don't, again, we don't, it seems like to receive, send or receive messages, there's not a translation or translator involved. No. Right? It, it, there's, a, I don't know what to call it, like a connection, you know, an impression, but there's something sort of beyond or outside of language that is going on. And it, it's, you know, it just hasn't been examined enough. But I, I've heard this story many times before. And it's not even like when I talk about the Weecholes or the Mongolians, it might be in regards to shaman things or rituals and things like this. But I've experienced it in Japan when I stayed with Japanese family 
and they were having some kind of a difficulty with the daughter, I knew everything that happened without being told a word in English or see anything. <laughs> it's not like I saw an altercation or any of this. I was just like, oh, this is what just happened. And like, they were just like, how did you know that? You know, I, I just, and, and they're not thinking in English. They're only thinking in Japanese. Right. I don't know. So it doesn't have to necessarily be about a spiritual thing. It can just be about, you know, some problematic thing in the family. And I'm sitting there knowing, oh, she did this with the ATM machine and this happened and that happened and she didn't tell you. And okay. Yeah, that, that, that's that, that's that, um, you know, I, I would call it alternative ways of knowing. So oh, it's good. I like that. Yeah. Alternative ways of knowing. So it's not just, you know, think of science, you know, it accumulates knowledge you know, research, you know, that's kind of more rationality, like in your head, you know, up here, right? But these other ways of knowing, alternative ways of knowing, it's, I think it's, you know, I, I the term maybe intuition or, or hunch, or, you know, gut, your kind of guts telling you this, right? That's not, that's not in your head. That's not rationality that comes from somewhere else. You know, and it, it kind of like, it's like a, almost a download. It's, it hits you all at once and you just know. Exactly. That's that. I like that, what you're saying. I like your other description because I only just say when people ask me, when I say, oh, so-and-so is going to die and they say, how do you know? And I say, I don't know how I know. I just know. And I can't give you an answer. My only answer, and I don't mean to sound, you know, egoistic or anything like that about it, but I have no other answer other than I just know. Right. That's right. all I can say. Right. And I think, Gail, I think you, you know, because you've had, you've had so much experience, you know, doing these things, right? You've learned to trust yourself. Mm -hmm. right? And I think that sort of speaks to, you know, your, uh, you know, people really respecting you and taking you so seriously. Like when you know something, because you, you know, experienced so many things, you just know it because you're at a point now, like where you just trust yourself more. Mm -hmm. It's a good, and it's, you know, it takes years to get to that place. And actually, when any of the things happen of exceptional experience, I never take it for granted. Mm -hmm. Whenever it happens, I always honor and welcome it and say, thank you very much. I, I, and, and I'm always feel like a little, it's almost like inside my body, a little thing goes, whoo, you know, like it's like a surprise each time. So it doesn't matter how many years that might have happened. I never feel like, oh, yeah, I do that all the time. I always feel like it's a special gift or surprise that came in and, and I'm always grateful for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, I think that's important too. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we're coming down on our hour now. And so this is where I would like you to share anything about your book that you would like our listeners to know, to wrap it up and to, you know, like suggestions of who you think this book is good for or what they might learn when they read this. Yeah, yeah. So, so paranormal ruptures, critical approaches to exceptional experiences, is my new book. Uh, you can uh, it's available on Amazon, uh, so you can order it off Amazon. There's a an ebook version for Kindle, or you can order a paperback. Um, and you know, it, you know, probably the re the viewers probably got a sense for this so far, but it it's sort of more academic, okay. But, you know, I think that, you know, people that, you know, are just sort of have a general interest in the paranormal, you know, if you stick with it, you can glean some really important insights out of some of the chapters. So, you know, just, just kind of like a red flag, you know, yeah, it's written to, to be read by, you know, university students or university professors, but, you know, I think some of the chapters are more uh, accessible than others. Um, so, you know, I, yeah. And, and, and the other part that I like about the book is that, you know, it's, you can kind of pick and choose which chapter to start at. It's not, you know, a book that starts from cover to finish, right? These are collected chapters. Yes. So, you know, if you're interested in Bigfoot, then I then read chapter two. If you're interested in AI, then read the last chapter. 
you know so so there's that kind of cool feature about it is that you can kind of jump around and and the people's that you're um, presenting information from their work are all very reputable. I don't know if you just want to speak a little bit about the few different people who you have in there that are telling these incredible stories. They're not just somebody who happened to walk by your house and tell you. They're right. very, very reputable people. So if you could just speak a little bit about them so our listeners would know the information and where you were getting some of this from. Yeah. Yep. So, so the contributors, you know, I myself have a, have a chapter in there, but I also have, you know, uh, uh, university faculty. So professors and, and psychologists and anthropologists, right. That have, you know, a, 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 an appointment at a university, right. So these are, you know, very reputable people. Um, and then there's also a couple um, uh, students uh, as well, you know, that I, I have, like, there's a PhD student um, that has a chapter in there uh, and, a, and a master's student uh, that has a chapter in there. So, you know, it's kind of a, a broad uh, swath, but, you know, these are people that are immersed in the research and, you know, uh, you know, their reputations are on, on the line, you know, so they're not just going to, you know, give you, you know, make something up, right? They they want to put forth like a very careful argument and uh, really kind of lay it out for you. And so who were some of those people? Yeah, so, um, so David Mitchell, Dr. David Mitchell, he's at CEIS, which is the California Institute for Integral Studies. No, well... Right? Yeah, uh, uh, Dr. Jack Hunter. Okay, he's a, uh, I think he's at Sophia University. Um, I, I might have that wrong. Uh, but he he's has a university position and he's based in the United Kingdom, mm -hmm. okay, in Wales. Um, Dr. Christine Simmons Moore. So she's she's my colleague at West Georgia. You know, so she's there and um, uh, yeah. research center also. So what'd you say, Gail? Sorry. And I think Christine Simmons, isn't she also involved at the Ryan Research Center? She is. She's involved involved at the Ryan Research Center. Her and, and John Cruth are, I know they're working on a study right now. So they're collaborating with each other. And you know, we're always at West Georgia, we're always talking to the Rhine. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's very reputable. And the fact that you're co-editor of the parapsychological association minefield uh also is uh if anyone doesn't know it's a very reputable magazine that's pulled out three times a year by the parapsychological association is that yeah. correct that that is correct yeah it's it's like our a bulletin like a, a newsletter you know but it, you know people can send in essays you know based on the theme and mo you know most of the time these are these are scholars in the field right sort of kind of giving their own take on on that theme for the issue. So yeah, it's it's published by the PA, which is the Parapsychological Association. And you can just Google Minefield uh, PA and it'll come right up. Yes, it has great, just any involvement in the Rhine research for anyone who's never heard about it, they can find incredible classes and courses also being taught by some of the people you spoke about and and others. And uh, it's a reputable organization that's been around for a very long time. Yes, I would agree. Yep. Yes. So is there any words of wisdom you'd like to share with anyone here? <sighs> ah, I'm sort of, I'm thinking about what we, what we began talking about, which is sort of, you know, I guess the, th oh, the theme for our discussion today is I keep going back to this word trust you know, just learning to kind of trust yourself, trust your intuition. And, you know, again, I, I never really, you know, had this vision of how my future was going to play out. You know, I knew that I liked school. I knew that I was interested in the paranormal. But that's, that's all I knew. <laughs> you know, so I'm like, trying to just experiment and go with it along the way. And then, you know, I was so fortunate that this is how it ended up. So, I think, you know, just learning to trust yourself, knowing who you are and, you know, trying to bring that forward and, and give back to the world. That's what's led me being a therapist, a teacher, 
is that I feel like I can give back to others. And that's so rewarding. Well, that's a very wonderful thing to share. I, uh, I, I'm not a teacher, but I'm hoping that by doing these podcasts, whether they reach a hundred people or thousands of people, if just anyone that's listening to them, it benefits them in some way, I feel like then I've done my job. So I'm trying to help in that way and reach people differently than say when you when I give a talk somewhere, there's only that 100 people there. But when mm -hmm. you do a podcast, it can go anywhere around in the world to any kind any person that may listen. And if they get information that helps them along the way or they find out that there's a place like the Rhine Research, these are the things, a way of connecting people to other experiences. So I'm hoping that in my little way here on this little small medium at large podcast that, that we do that. <laughs> so I, I want to thank you so much for being here today. And um, people will be able to find your book on Amazon. I'll have uh, uh, um, information on the description of your website or places where people can contact you. And I want to thank you so much for being with us here today. And if you'll just hold tight while we did a little closing. Okay, listeners, I hope you enjoyed our show today. We enjoyed having our guest, uh, Jacob. And we want to just remind you to subscribe, like, share, comment. And I want to thank my daughter, Nancy, for posting all the shows. And I want to thank my son, Richard, for producing these shows. So have a very wonderful day. Remember to share your stories because stories can heal. Bye. 